Jackson will be speaking tonight. We'll be leaving right after services for a few days off in Destin with Jason and family. Hate to miss his sermon, but we'll be back next Sunday evening and he'll be preaching again. Our lesson this morning is the 13th lesson in this continuing series on questions from God. And this particular lesson is the first in a three series of lessons under this theme, questions from God in Isaiah. Isaiah was an 8th century prophet to Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Isaiah 1.1. Other than the days of Noah, the time of the writing prophets were unexcelled for wickedness. The world was enmeshed in idolatry. Idol worship is worship of self. It permits and promotes every form of fleshly indulgence. Its chief aim and pleasure is sexual in nature. Israel and Judah borrowed idols from the heathen nations and lavished their affections upon them. Of Judah, Isaiah said, quote, Their land also is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made, Isaiah 2.8. The book of Isaiah is full of questions from God. Some are repetitive relative to the truths under consideration. The following selections contain truths exceeding worthy of reflection to the spiritual enrichment of one's heart and life. Though interspersed with a forward look to the restoration of Israel to Canaan and the coming of Christ and the church, the primary emphasis of Isaiah chapters 1 to 12 is judgment upon Judah and Isaiah 1, 2 to 15 sets the stage for this tragic emphasis. God's petitions heaven and earth to testify of his charge against Judah. God had reared and nourished the nation, but they had rebelled against him. Even dumb animals knew their master and the source of their food supply. But Judah did not know God and had no desire to reflect upon his nature, ways, and will. God described the wicked state of Judah and then inquired of the nation with his first question, why should ye be stricken anymore? Isaiah 
Divine chastisement is a manifestation of the love of God and is for man's good. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth, Hebrews 12, 6. Its design is to effect solemn deliberation upon one's spiritual status before God, generating humility and penitence. God followed his question with his own assessment of Judah's response and condition. Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. Isaiah 1.5. The rulers in Jerusalem are equated with Sodom and the people of Judah as Gomorrah. Isaiah 1.10. Divine affliction cannot deter a nation that call evil good and good evil. Isaiah 5.20. And that will not hear the law of the Lord. Isaiah 30 verse 9. The northern kingdom of Israel refused the chastisement of God and were buried in Assyrian captivity. Judah continued in their course of rebellion and their ardor for idols. They rejected Jeremiah's plea to cease chasing after idols, declaring, There is no hope, for I have loved strangers. Those were idols. I have loved idols. And after them, I will go. Jeremiah 2.25 10,000 former inhabitants of Jerusalem had been in Babylonian captivity for over four years and were yet destitute of any spiritual profit from the chastening hand of God upon them. God informed Ezekiel that Israel will not hearken unto thee, for they will not hearken unto me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Ezekiel 2.7 Divine chastisement is of no value to those whose hearts are devoted to evil and are not open to the word of God and self-reflection. Isaiah 1, 11 to 15 is a tragic picture of Judah's hypocrisy in worship. And this lamentable truth is the background for God's second question to the nation. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? Isaiah 1, 11. The hands of Judah were satiated with sacrifices, but their hearts were full of sin. Their heads assumed a prayerful posture, but they were full of blood. Isaiah 115. Toward the close of the book, Isaiah revisits this mournful theme with eight questions from God that accentuates Judah's abuse of fast and the Sabbath, false accusations against God, strife, wickedness, oppression, neglect of the poor and needy, and vain speech. Isaiah 58, 5 and 7. The nation was incapable of discerning the connection between pure worship and righteous living. The design of spirit and truth worship is to glorify God and actuate a virtuous life. A man who bows his head in homage before God with a contrite heart does not bless God on Sunday and curse man on Monday. 
James 3, 9. Tampering with God's pattern of worship is an exceedingly perilous act. It is laden with severe spiritual consequences. If a man can supplant the thinking of God with self-will on one subject, he can and will do on any subject. Such an evil disposition of heart negates the need for divine revelation and results in the exaltation of a man's own will as an object of veneration. This is idolatry. Approaching God in worship that conforms to divine mandate promotes personal inspection, penitence, and humility. Displacing, behold, God says, with, behold, I think, fosters self-righteousness and pride. Jeroboam revamped God's pattern of worship for the northern kingdom of Israel, and his actions served as the basis for Israel's spiritual destruction and their national end in Assyrian captivity, 2 Kings 17, 21-23. Drawing near to God in worship and fellowship that adheres to his will produces spiritual enrichment in every aspect of life. Sunday's participation in the Lord's Supper deepens one's hatred of sin and nourishes his love and gratitude for God as he deliberates upon the price that Christ paid for the salvation of his soul. The act of proportionate giving is a monumental aid in keeping material things in proper perspective. Bowed heads, closed eyes, and singularity of heart in prayer in an assembly of saints of like precious faith, 2 Peter 1, 1, promotes the unity of the church and the love of brethren as each member joins in all at the expre inexpressible wonder of God. Congregational singing enables the heart to soar on wings of love into the very presence of God with melodic sounds of affection, praise, and devotion that brings pleasure to God and comfort to man. The proclamation in the worship assembly of wondrous things, Psalm 119.18, from the mind of God, Serve as a barrier to sin, Psalm 119.11. Strengthens the soul, Psalm 119.28. Grants understanding, Psalm 119.34. Prevents covetousness, Psalm 119.36. Bestows comfort in affliction, Psalm, Psalm 119.50. Imparts wisdom, Psalm 119.98. And is the source of light, Psalm 119.105. To guide us safely through this dark world of sin to our eternal home. Faithfulness in spirit and truth worship procure, procures blessings for one's personal life, the home, community, workplace, and field of play. It nurtures the mind, the pivot of life. It was to Judah's natural ruin that they perverted God's design for worship and fellowship. Having pleaded with Judah to comply with his directives for spiritual cleansing, stressed his blessing for obedience and warning of judgment for rebellion, God raises a question in the form of an exclamatory lament. Verses 
how is the faithful city that's Jerusalem become an harlot what a question Isaiah 121 Jerusalem had descended from being a lodging place for righteousness to a haven for murderers. The judiciary promoted theft, pursued bribes, and spurned widows and orphans who approached the court for justice. Isaiah 123. Consuming the capital city of Judah, God said, This is Jerusalem. I have set it in the midst of the nations and countries that are round about her. We have talked about that text in our study of the prophets here at Panama Street many, many times. Ezekiel 5, 5. God sent Jerusalem in the midst of a dark, heathen world to function as a spiritual lighthouse on a sea of idolatry and sin. It was Jerusalem's mission to bear witness of God's truth and righteousness to a pagan world. Israel responded... By exchanging God's statute for wickedness, Ezekiel 5, 6, multiplying their sins to surpass those of the heathen, Ezekiel 5, 7, and defiling the temple with idols, Ezekiel 5, 11. Isaiah addressed 10 pagan nations with the judgment of God. That's chapters 13 to 23. Perhaps you in our class on Isaiah, for some five years I believe, will remember that. Isaiah chapters 13 to 23. Ten pagan nations are addressed in that section of chapters. And what did Isaiah do? He wept bitterly. Isaiah 22, 4, because Jerusalem was numbered among them. What a tragedy. Jerusalem's spiritual holotry called for God's mourning. God's response cast to the literary figure of an exclamatory act of mourning in essence asked, how could this have happened? Another great question from the mind of God. God is omniscient. The church that his son said, I will build, Matthew 16, 18, was in his mind from eternity. It inheres in the eternal purpose of God to make known the manifold wisdom of God, Ephesians 3, 10 to 11. It is the product of the gospel preached and obeyed, and it became a reality in the world when the first gospel sermon in its consummated form in the name of the resurrected Christ was proclaimed on Pentecost of Acts 2. Oh, how the faithful remnant love that truth and that monumental chapter. The one gospel of Christ yields the one church of Christ. Christ is its head, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Its foundation, 1 Corinthians 3, 11, And its savior, Ephesians 5, 23. God has placed the church in the midst of a pagan world to point to Christ, Calvary, and the gospel as its only hope. Its doctrine, plan of salvation, pattern of worship, and organizational structure is perfect because it is based on the truth that comes from God. Christ demands its unity. Why? That the world may believe that thou hast sent me, John 17, 21. The present status of the church is a spiritual disaster. A host of congregations have opened the door of the church to liberalism, denominationalism, and worldliness. 
corruption in doctrine cannot duplicate congregations of the church that Jesus said, I will build. The spirit of liberalism is the spirit of evil. It exalts emotions over the mind, feeling over thinking, and expresses a no big deal sentiment toward anything inconsistent with its own self-will. The harm that it has done to the church that belongs to Christ defies adequate verbal expression. How could this happen again? Is a pertinent question. Isaiah 2 closes with a description of God's approaching judgment upon Judah, verses 10 to 22. He is going to shake the earth in his wrath, destroy their idols and other objects upon which they have relied, and calls upon the nation to cease trusting in man. Chapter 3 commences with a continuing disposition of the consequences of sin, or depiction, that will plague the nation. The essentials of life will begin to dissipate. Corrupt leaders in every area of life would be replaced by novices and societal disintegration would grip Judah. Jerusalem was in a state of ruin and they manifested their spiritually debased state by mimicking Sodom in wearing their sins on their countenances without shame. As an illustration of Judah's inhumanity, God pointed to the abuse of the poor by the rulers and then raised the question, What mean ye that ye beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor? Isaiah 3.15 The Bible is filled with God's concern for the poor. Following the revelation of the Ten Commandments, God said, Thou shalt not rest the judgment of the poor in his cause, Exodus 23, 6. God made special provisions for the poor during harvest by forbidding Israel to reap the corners of their fields, the gleanings of their harvest, fallen fruit, or returning to retrieve a forgotten sheaf of grain in the field. That's the wonderful heart of God beating in benevolent concern for the poor of the world. Deuteronomy 24, 19 to 21. He also required the cancellation of debts at the end of every seven years and warned Israel about refusing loans to their poor neighbors at the proximity of that time period. Deuteronomy 15, 1 to 11. One of Job's many righteous traits was that he was a, quote, father to the poor. Job 29, 16. And his soul grieved for the poor. Job 30, 25. God foretold Israel's judgment because they sold the poor for a pair of shoes. Amos 2, 6. One of the means by which God gauges the advancing end of a nation is in its abuse of the most vulnerable of its citizens. 
Isaiah 5, 1 to 7 portrays the nation of Judah in the emblem of a vineyard. As a perfect husbandman, God constructs a vineyard with every need met. The soil is fertile. The stones are removed. The best vine is selected. A tower is erected in its midst to allow constant oversight, and a wine press is fashioned to extract the juice of the grape. Every need abundantly met. This was God's work. This was his vineyard, and he was a husbandman. To God's disappointment, the vineyard produces wild grapes. Viewing the tragedy of his vineyard, God inquired of Judah with two questions. What could have been done more to my vineyard? that have I not done in it? Two, wherefore when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes? Isaiah 5, 4. As is characteristic of God's questions, these two queries are designed to motivate proper thinking regarding His nature, His will, and ways in contrast to Judah's conduct. It's always been a matter of trying to get men to think right about God's spiritual thing. We've talked about that often here at Panama Street, and that's the key to unlocking all of the wondrous things of the mind of God, thinking right about God. Judah was a cluster of wild grapes. How did this happen? It is not God's nature to give. Is it not God's nature to give and bless? Even among the heathen nations of old, God bore witness of himself in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven in fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Acts 14, 17. There was not one good thing the vineyard of Judah needed that God had not abundantly supplied. That's the nature of God. Proper thinking about God and his goodness toward the nation would have produced a spirit of penitence that would have changed the woes and judgments of this chapter into blessings. The history of America's beginning and formation into national prominence is unsurpassed in the chronicles of human existence. It reverberates with divine providence, moving backwards some six decades the essence of Moses' statement concerning Israel could be uttered about America. Hear this text. For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? Moses, in his final sermon, said that about the nation of Israel. And going back several decades, that could have been said about this country. America has responded to God's goodness by declaring war on the mother's womb, destroying the sanctity of the home, converting sexual perversion into normalcy, transforming the work ethic into entitlement 
and fashioning idols out of money, pleasure, materialism, sports, and entertainment. That's where we are. We are as idolatrous in this nation today as we sit here pondering questions from God, as was ancient Israel and Judah. They do not have one thing over us. God's Son made the church He promised to build a reality in Pentecost of Acts 2. He has bountifully blessed His spiritual vineyard. Every need has been abundantly supplied. He has furnished it with a perfect head, perfect foundation, perfect Savior, perfect source of authority, perfect plan of salvation, and perfect pattern of work and organization. You can't prove, improve on what God does. Each congregation has been promised abounding grace, quote, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. What a promise, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. He has promised each member that he is able to do exceedingly, abundantly. Listen to this promise, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ. He has promised each member that he is able to do exceedingly. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit could not tie together a sufficient number of adjectives to press this truth appropriately. He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Ephesians 3.20. Multiplied thousands have responded by forming an empty substitute in its midst. And I say again, and I'll say again in the future, the church of liberalism that has raised the sword of rebellion against the unique and exclusive nature of the church that belongs to Christ. What does this church herald? I think, I feel, I like, I want, I'm going to have over God said. What it is teaches and practices is often antagonistic to biblical truth. The closing point. America and the spiritual vineyard of God would be wise to deliberate upon the questions God posed to Judah. Oh, the inexpressible wonder, beauty, and spiritual wealth to be found in questions from God. If you're present, never obeyed the gospel. We encourage you by faith to repent of your sins, confess Christ, be baptized into Christ. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. You've done that, send in some public way. You just need the prayers of this good church. We'd be happy to fulfill your need while we stand and sing. Jesus is calling, calling, calling. Jesus is calling today.
is waiting, waiting, waiting. Open now standeth the door. Soon the night falleth, falleth, falleth. Closed are the gates evermore. They are so happy, happy. My hope is built on nothing less. Thank you, Frank, for doing such a wonderful job with these lessons from Isaiah and how much they mean to us. And thank you all for your love that's been manifested towards our family in the last few days, especially. Sing the first and last verses and we'll be dismissed in prayer. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand when he shall come with trumpet sound oh may i then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone thoughtless to stand before the throne on christ the solid rock i stand all other ground is sinking sand all other ground is sinking sand